Friends, would you please stand as we read this morning from Colossians chapter 3. We will be reading verses 12 through 17. Again, this is the Lord's word. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the Lord's word. Please be seated. Again, O Father, we thank you again for your word and pray that your blessing be upon us who are weak and tired, and we pray that you would grant us ears to hear. We ask for your spirit's blessing, his presence with us, We pray that you would empower your word to accomplish what you have designed for it to accomplish today. Make your servant faithful, make your servant plain. We pray that you will bless your people, that they too will be faithful, and they will receive the plain truth of your word. And Beyond these things, we ask, Father, again, that you will cause the kingdom of Satan great injury, and that you will set captives free, and that we would grow in obedience to you, who gave his life for us. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace is one of those words like love that have been mangled, abused, or misused by our culture, making it difficult, somewhat nebulous even, to understand. What are we supposed to make of peace? Perhaps it's not so much its definition that we struggle with, but the application of peace. For instance, uh, in our culture, we see this, and you can see it almost every day, and they may not use the word peace, um, but we see this, that everyone seems to love peace. Everyone wants harmony. We all want things to go along in a very easy and uncombative and pleasant manner. And yet, the strange thing that we see in our culture is that regardless of what's happening in the culture, right, we have... uh, we, we see these tremendous injustices taking place, tremendous immoralities that are occurring, and what's the expected behavior? We're supposed to just turn a blind eye to these things and just keep peace. Just keep peace. And I find that people take this word and we apply it, rather we misapply it, because we're actually not to just keep peace at all costs. There is, there is a significant, there is a, a way that we are supposed to keep peace and we are to labor for peace, but it is not to turn a blind eye to what's taking place in our culture. Jeremiah wrote this, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people, superficially saying, Peace, peace! But there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? 
They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. They had peace. The prophets were saying, peace, peace. But it was superficial. Why? Because there was no repentance of their sin in Israel. When we come to Colossians here, we are exhorted not to a superficial peace, not a a veneer, a shallow performance of it, but to the application, the pursuit of peace, a peace of that kind which was secured by Christ, a pursuit of peace with one another in the church. We're focusing in just on verse 15 today. Again, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Going back just to verse 12 and and, um, those following verses, we have been exhorted to put on the mind of Christ those virtues that we see exemplified in Jesus Christ. Paul would write, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The body of Christ, my friends, with Christ as her head, is so incredibly important. How we treat one another is so crucial that without one another, without one another, we suffer. And I've wrestled with this, that in the American church, we like to stress the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I am not here to undermine that idea. There needs to be a walk with the Lord. There needs, each of you need to wrestle with your sin and you need to look upon the Lord Jesus and cry out to him for forgiveness. But in our efforts to stress personal relationship, what have we done? But we've attacked the church as as if the church was kind of a secondary idea, not quite so important, not quite so necessary. And I think reading through the scriptures, and as we're hearing in Sunday school, the church is vitally important to your Christianity. So someone who says, well, I can be a Christian and I don't have to associate with a church, I'm sorry, I think you might be on really, really, really thin ice. Because that's not what the Lord says, and that's not what Paul here is instructing in Colossians. Listen to our confession of faith as I read here from chapter 26, paragraphs 1 and 2. All saints, they state, that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Now understand, when we say they have communion, we're not talking about the communion table. Just like when we're talking about fellowship, we're not talking about the fellowship meal. It goes deeper. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification." 
these dear men who wrote this document 400 and some years ago understood the importance of the body of Christ, an idea that has fallen on hard times in our day because we all go off and do our own things. And I've lived in a number of places in the United States, and none of them can hold a candle to that mindset of those of the Wyomians. In other words, all men, all women are fiercely independent. But it was Wyoming that wrote the book on it. They are the experts. And that's really, it's kind of funny, but it's really not. Because it's the very thing that hurts the body of Christ and it hurts your souls. If you can get up and walk away and say, I want nothing to do with this, then I go, that's on you and that's hurting you, but guess who else it hurts? It hurts everyone else. This is what Paul is, is getting at. Notice the context. Notice he's getting ready to, to go into family relations. He's getting into the idea of where does perfection, where does maturity come from? It comes when we abide in Christ and we cling to one another. And those are the things that we have cast aside in our culture, and it's to our detriment. So whenever we hear, oh, we're, we're fiercely independent, that should make us weep. It shouldn't make us grin and think we've arrived. That's a blight on the people of God. It's a blight. It's not something to be proud of, but something we ought to be ashamed of if it is said of us. We are to put on, says Paul, these virtues, but not in a rote manner, as we saw last week. This is not after a checklist fashion that merely performs a deed, uh, but is lacking in love. For this reason, the apostle wrote, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity or the bond of perfection. It is love, this biblical other-centered love which keeps us from flying apart. It's a love which holds on to one another for the other person's benefit. What did we learn in Philippians 2 this morning? What was it that kept them, that was in danger to them, is that they were not acting in humility, but they were behaving selfishly. They were behaving selfishly. And to that end, we come to verse 15, where Paul again writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. What is this peace? This nebulous concept that we mishandle or see mishandled so often in our culture. What is this peace um, that we're supposed to let rule us? What is this peace to which we are called? This peace is that which should rule in our hearts. It should rule our hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Paul says. He's speaking here of the peace of Christ. What is the peace of Christ or what is Christ's peace? We surely ought to see it here that this peace is no superficial peace as we will see. It's not a superficial peace. And what Paul is calling us to here is no superficial peace. Right? That's what, that's, that's, that's a bad thing. Peace just for peace's sake. Peace, without dealing with the issues, is not peace. It's superficial. It's shallow. And I want you to, to understand 
that the peace that Christ accomplished, Christ's peace, is no superficial peace. Jesus Christ underwent tremendous suffering to secure peace. Can I get an amen? Amen. He underwent a, a, a terrible suffering in order to secure true peace, a deep peace, a lasting, eternal peace. This is what Christ has done. Listen, uh, as the angels, Luke records this as the angels came and we're told, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God on the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's a heavenly host, a heavenly army, troops of angels, and they come and they're saying, glory to God, um, Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Why is this announcement so astounding? I'll tell you why. Because the heavenly army is saying these things. Armies are not for saying things, therefore, war. That's the first thing I want you to see. And here, also, it's an, it's an uh, astounding statement because their announcement is an announcement of peace instead of the expectation of judgment. They come announcing. Why do they announce this? Isaiah had foretold it in Isaiah 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. What? Prince of Peace. Christ has come. He has come, and he has come to become the Prince of Peace. The unregenerate man and woman have a terrible problem. And by unregenerate, I mean you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. You have no interest in him, and you prefer to go your own way. I don't care if you've said a prayer. You prefer to go your own way and not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's an unregenerate person. The regenerate person has Christ and acknowledges Christ as king. And Christ is that prince of peace. The unregenerate man or woman, again, has a terrible problem. He is under the wrath and curse of God. He is in rebellion against God while in the flesh, and God is his enemy. Our larger catechism, question 27, says this, The fall brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God, his displeasure and curse. So as we are by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. Paul would say in Romans 3.17 that the unregenerate man, the path of peace they have not known. My friends, we have a problem. And the Lord does not pretend that there is no problem. He does not pretend that there is no sin like our culture wants to do. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. We got men dressing up like women and wanting to go into the women's bathroom. Nothing to see here or to get your dander up over, friends. Just keep moving along. Baloney. It's sin. It's perversion. And we don't just stand. None of you would do it. I know you wouldn't. You wouldn't stand by and go, well, nothing to do here. I'm going to have to start going to the bathrooms with my my daughters and wife and grandchildren now just to keep people out of there who don't belong there. 
We don't do peace that way. The Lord doesn't do peace that way. He doesn't pretend that there is no sin. He does not overlook our rebellious deeds or wipe them away. There is no superficial declarations with our God. He does not declare peace where there can be no peace, but rather he makes peace. He makes peace. He provides. He accomplishes that which secures peace. Peace with him. Do you understand the problem? The sinner has no peace with God. He is under his wrath and curse, and he justly deserves damnation. He deserves hell. That's the reality. But God, in his love, remembers the sinner. How did he do this? Romans 3, 21 and following. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, listen, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. God displayed publicly Jesus Christ, who was the sacrifice given to satisfy the wrath of God against the sinner. And we are told that this, this is grabbed hold of by faith. The man or the woman who clings to Christ, who runs to Christ, who falls before Christ, will never be disappointed. And we're told in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin, our offenses against a holy and perfect God have been dealt with. Again, it is not a superficial peace. God loves you. He doesn't care what you do. As long as you're sincere, who am I to say? That is hellish doctrine. He demonstrates his love in that he gave his son to redeem us. He accomplished peace on our behalf And it was not a superficial peace. It cost the Son of God his very life and the suffering we read about and sing about in our hymns. It is not superficial. Because of what he has done in his active obedience, obeying the will will and commands of the Father and never sinning, and in his passive obedience, his suffering on Calvary's cross, His righteousness was credited to us. Our sin was credited to him, and he suffered in our stead. The believer is no longer now, because of Christ, under the wrath and curse of God, and we no longer fear condemnation from God. This is the peace of Christ. This is Christ's peace. It is the peace that Christ has secured for us with God by his life, death, and resurrection so that I can say, and I ought to be able to say at any given moment, on any given day, that I am going to be okay. I am at peace 
regardless of what happens to me, even if things are not going okay, because Christ, uh, because in Christ, that is, all is right with God the Father. And how often, how often, how often we forget this very thing. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It is then this peace, the peace brought by Christ, as scholars define it, that tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. The word peace is not used in this passage. But I think what you see as we read it, verses 22 and following, you will see that here is a picture of peace. The kind of peace, the peace of Christ. Acts 16, 22 and following. Paul and Silas have seen their first converts in Europe. There is a woman of divination, witchcraft, and she's going around. And finally, Paul grows weary with her divination, and he heals her. (laughs) And he gets arrested for this because he's just now upset all the apple carts because he delivered a young lady from her sin. We, we read this, the crowd, in verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore the robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, just pause there. What would you be like if you had just been beaten with rods and thrown in an inner prison and your feet are in stocks, what would you be doing? Grumbling, angry, cursing, saying, I I wish I had become a plumber (laughs) instead of this disciple. What, what What were we doing here anyway? I mean, you can imagine all of the sorts of things that they say. Listen to this in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is a picture of peace. Paul and Silas, that's a wonderful picture of peace. I regret to say, I think I might have been spitting mad. I'm ashamed of that. I don't think that's a funny thing for me. I'm ashamed of it. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They must have had the peace of Christ, again being beaten and jailed. And what are they doing? They're praying and singing. And notice that when the jailer wants to hurt himself, they say, don't do it. 
how many people would say just a little closer to that neck maybe do it faster they don't do that instead and even what do they do they go on to bless to bless the jailer that's the peace of Christ that's what it looks like and it's with this in mind then I look at this next part in Colossians 3 where we read this let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What are we to do with this peace? This peace of Christ, we are to let it rule in our hearts. What does this mean? This word rule is only used here. A form of it is used or was used back in chapter 2, verse 18. And it means to be an umpire, to decide, to determine, direct, control, or as is translated here, rule. His instruction is not that we have a peaceful feeling in our hearts. Let's be clear about that. He's not saying have peaceful feelings in your heart towards one another. Because who can do that? Don't worry about tax day. Don't worry about tax day. How can I not worry about it? It's breathing down my throat. How do you conjure up a peaceful feeling? He's not saying to conjure up a peaceful feeling. But rather that the peace of Christ... Decide, determine, direct, control, or rule the way that I act towards another in the church or those around me in life. In other words, this affects how I treat others, that I am not controlled how I feel at any given moment. Again, bringing up the IRS, you, you, you find out you owe more money than you were intending to owe. And so you've got this big bill, and what do you do? You're angry, you're afraid, and you take it out on those around you, right? Nope. But as with Paul and Silas, they are secure in the hand of God, now having peace with him through the work of Christ, and they are not flustered by their imprisonment or their beatings, nor do they have a sour attitude towards the Philippian jailer. The peace of Christ is to be the rule, the arbiter of how we treat each other, and peace is to be what we aim for in every circumstance and with every person. Paul would say it in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I am to pursue and to make effort uh, to live in harmony with others. Can I do it? Well, consider, Christian, you have been washed in the blood of Christ. Your peace with God has been secured, and the details of your life have been mapped out, even the very difficult ones. Can I do it? The answer is yes, you can, and you must strive to. Why? Because peace is that to which we were called in one body. Christ is the head of the church. He said earlier in Colossians 1, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the first he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So again, the Lord has one body. He has one bride, one church, which consists of Jews and Gentiles. And friends, you are one or the other. 
There is no third category. If you're not a Jew, you're part of everyone else. (laughs) And he speaks to them this way. Listen to what Paul would write in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Being then that believers are one mystical body with one head and have access in one spirit to the Father, what becomes of us when we are warring and fighting and grumbling against one another? What happens to us when we don't maintain the peace of the church? Adam, in his characteristic fashion, summarizes it quite neatly. He says, peace maintains the unity of the parts that form one body. Once again, my friends, we become isolated from the other parts of the body, and we are hurt. We don't grow spiritually, and we don't benefit as we ought Why is the American church so weak and so sickly? Because we thought fellowship involved potluck meals only. And we thought communion was what we did once a month by taking bread and wine. When that's a picture of something so much bigger, of our union in Christ. Once again, we hurt ourselves. Listen to what Paul would say in Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Because the things that come up are not more important than that which holds us together, my friends, we are to strive for peace. And Christ has accomplished this peace regarding us. And this peace is that which is promoted by thanksgiving. I'm almost done. Paul tacks on this little phrase, and be thankful. At first, this rather succinct exhortation may seem oddly placed, but hopefully I may convince you otherwise. What does thankfulness have to do with maintaining peace in the body of Christ? Ask yourself this. What is it that destroys peace among brothers? What is it that destroys peace in the church and in a home? My friends, it is sin. It is ingratitude for who and what God has done in you and for you. Listen to what James writes in James 4, 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So it starts something like this. I see you. I'm annoyed by you. I envy what you have, your gifts, your belongings, your position. I want what you have, or I don't like what you are, or I don't like what I am. I don't like, 
I hate, this is terrible, this is bad. We go on and we poor mouth what the Lord has done. And by the way, that's our culture right now. Through and through, people complaining about their skin colors, their sex, complaining about their jobs, complaining about their wages, complain, 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 ad infinitum, and it's destroying us. And this kind of stuff comes into the church, and it should not come into this church. That complaining destroys everything. It's a cancer to us. So I become angry and disgruntled, and I murmur. And like the pagan spoken of by Paul in Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontent heart. Discontentment, ingratitude, envy, these destroy peace. At another church not too long ago, it started at a woman's Bible study with complaining about how long the sermons were. They were the same length as what I preach here. And when I confronted the lady, she said, you should preach for the average attention span. I said, and what do you think that is? She said, 20 minutes. So I Googled it. I said, the average attention span of an adult, eight minutes. Eight minutes. I said to her, so you want me to preach eight-minute sermons? That's too short. That's the average attention span, I said. And these women sat in their Bible study under the guise of spirituality and they continued to rip upon the pastor until this leaven spread through the church and for various other reasons too they all found confirmation on why they had to correct the pastor rather than sitting and giving thanks for uh, the fact that a man will stand up and give you the word of God unbelievable and yet it happens all the time And before long, everyone found reason to be dissatisfied because they sat and they complained how terrible their lives were. Couldn't get home quick enough to our meatloaf or our games on television. Life is terrible. Complaining, dissension, envy, These are the things that destroy a church. These are the things that destroy peace. So ask yourself this. Why would Paul say, and be thankful? You see the difference? Look, friends, I'm not up here saying I'm perfect. I'll be the first to tell you I'm a wretch. Maybe my wife would be the first to tell you I'm a wretch. (laughs) she would have reason. You have a pastor who feeds you, who points you to Christ, who doesn't steal from you, who doesn't mess with women. I'm uptight. I'm wound tight like a rubber band. I don't always deliver the goods as gentle as I ought. 
Sometimes I'm too gentle in what I say. Sometimes I don't address problems quick enough. But surely you can find something to give thanks to the Lord for for me, just as I can and do for you. And we're going to sit there and we're going to denigrate one another. We're not going to have peace in the church. But if you can find something to be thankful for, I learned this from my mother. My father was a wonderful man. But he had some hang-ups. He's big and loud and opinionated. He'd hang his clothes on nails in the bedroom wall. My mother, who was very conscious about how things looked, David, why do you have to put your pants on the wall? Because that's where I can get them. This is where they... <laughs> a real fashion icon, right? Um... And my mother once said to me, and I think it's a good practical advice for us in the congregation, if I were to sit there and focus on all the things you do wrong, we won't last. But if I start to focus, and my mother said, yeah, there's a lot of things your dad does that drive me up the wall, but you know what he is? He's hardworking, he's faithful, he comes home for 60-some years. He came home every night with a paycheck, and he, he took care of his family. Personally speaking, I don't think I could ask for better. He loved the Lord imperfectly, and he dragged his children to church until it became something we loved and did more than just accept. We loved it. What is it, friends, that promotes peace? It's gratitude. It's thankfulness. It's giving thanks for all that God has done for you, the peace that you now have with him because of what Christ has done. It is giving thanks to the Lord for the future that awaits you, the hope of glory, and for some of us, we'll get there sooner than others. But this is what's coming for us. This world and everything in it is going to pass away. It is. And you think of all the greatest delights that you could have in this earth and they are going to pale in comparison to the joy and the sweetness of being with the Lord and his people in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what awaits us. It's not hell. We should give thanks to the Lord for this. We should give thanks to the Lord for the blessings he has given us in this life. You should daily thank the Lord for this church body. Back in January, I stood up and I started thanking people for what they have done. You just sit down with a piece of paper. When you start feeling yourself grumbling about how bad you have it, you need to stop immediately and you need to start counting your blessings. You take a pencil and paper, you write out the name, and you write out what they have been doing. I could do that. I could say many, many, many excellent things about the people in this congregation for the things they have done. I am grateful for you and I'm grateful for the gifts that you use in the way that you care for people from the muffins that Den and Mary bring and put by the coffee pots to the thank you notes and birthday cards that Sharon sends out and the phone calls that are coming in and, and the people who count money and, and do all of these things. The body of Christ doesn't function apart from each other, but with each other and with the gifts the Lord gives, we are blessed. Give thanks to the Lord for your church family. Give thanks to the Lord for the blessings he gives you, for your homes, the daily provisions, the precious children who run around and twirl in circles. And we think, will they ever settle down? And they will. And they will become mighty servants of the Lord. 
It's just a matter of time. Give thanks to the Lord for his precious word, for his abiding presence, and for the promises which have almost all been fulfilled to this point. And friends, give thanks to the Lord for the gifts he has given you, and don't begrudge them. Don't say, why am I, why did I get stuck with this and they didn't? That's the wrong question. The Lord entrusts us with things and says, be a faithful steward right where I put you with what I've given you. Don't wish for something more. Don't wish for something different. Give thanks to the Lord for where he has put you and what he has given you. Give thanks for each other and for the gifts that each other brings. Be thankful for one another, for their dispositions. Again, the spiritual gifts that they possess. When was the last time you stopped and said thank you to someone for what they have done? Try it rather than going home and complaining about the muffins were a day old. I haven't heard that, by the way. Keep, keep bringing them. But we complain, and, and we, we destroy, and we tear down things, and it hurts the body of Christ. Rather than complain, which deteriorates peace, we are to give thanks. We are to hold gratefulness in our hearts for the many favors that the Lord has bestowed upon us. And by this, by what all that Christ has done, we feed and promote peace in the church. Let's pray. We thank you again, O Lord, for your kindness to us and for your word and pray your blessing be upon it, that we would have hearts that listen to it, that we would give thanks for all the many blessings you have given us, and you have given us so many. Forgive us, Father, for falling, falling prey to the mindset of the Americas, to the mindset of this world, who complain about everything. Rather, we give thanks, for we have nothing uh, that you haven't given to us. We pray, Lord, that we would be known as a church that loves and a church that praises her God for all that he has done. Grant us your grace now as we would go from this place. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.